Hey there, thanks for tuning in to the St. Oswald's Haberfield Sermon Podcast. We're a church in Sydney's inner west, following Jesus and helping people find grace, learn hope and be light. If you'd like to visit us or find out more, go to cciw.church. Great to be uh, with you this morning. Andrew Cadet is my name. I'm the Senior Minister of Christchurch Inner West and a uh, real pleasure to uh, share with you uh, this morning as we uh, begin this uh, Easter series, which will run the Sunday before Easter and go to the Sunday after Easter. So it's a, it's a big Easter uh, this year. Uh, every day we ask ourselves uh, so many questions, uh, don't you find? Uh, what should I wear? Uh, is it going to be hot? Is it going to be cold? What do I, uh, what's, the, what's the weather going to be like? What's on the calendar today? How am I going to fit everything in? And it's these kinds of questions, just the sort of minutiae of life that sort of take up most of our mental focus and energy. But every so often, deeper questions uh, rise to the surface and surprise us and even on occasion leave us stumped. Uh, Questions about origin and destiny. Where did we come from? And where's it all headed, if anywhere? Questions of right and wrong at the grand level. Why is there so much evil in the world? And what can be done about it, if anything? Sometimes it's the the big moments that push these questions to the surface. The death of a loved one or a cancer scare. uh, The breakdown of a relationship or getting unexpectedly sacked. But sometimes it's the little moments, uh, the movie falling down Uh, classically has the main character played by Michael Douglas. Uh, I don't know if you've seen the movie. It's a really funny movie. I mean, not not half funny, just interesting. Uh, Michael Douglas loses it completely when a convenience store owner won't give him change for a telephone call at a public phone. It was pre-mobiles. And then he can't get breakfast at a McDonald's because he's five minutes late into the switch from the breakfast menu to the lunch menu. And he just breaks. The sheer build-up of the pressures and frustrations of modern life finally crack him open and he starts asking the great questions, albeit with a gun in his hand as he goes completely nuts. The questions are there, whether we like it or not. And what's pretty clear about our culture at the moment is that it doesn't like it. We do almost anything we can not to face the big questions and instead to settle for the little questions, the when and the how and the who rather than the why. Which brings us, as I said, to this four-week sermon series that we're starting this morning. The the Christian story, what we call the gospel, is a story that is so rooted in reality, so rooted in the way that things are, the, the, the truth, and along with the truth, grace and beauty, that's, it's a story that we tell over and over and over again. And with Easter approaching, we reach that story's crescendo, really. And it it wants us to slow down and to see what happens when we throw our deeper questions at it. Can the Christian story cope? Can it provide significant, substantial answers to these deeper questions of life? What happens when we let the gospel of Jesus, the story of his life and death and resurrection, answer life's biggest questions? That's what the series is called. You'll have seen on the postcards if you've seen them, the story that answers life's questions. And today, why are we even here? What is the meaning of it all? And we're going to break it down into three parts. The importance of meaning, the elusiveness of meaning, and then third, receiving meaning. 
Importance, elusiveness, receiving. So first then, the importance of meaning. We need to start, of course, by defining what meaning is, what makes something meaningful, whether a, a triumph or a relationship or a life as a whole. And I think uh, the idea of meaning captures two aspects of life. The first is purpose. We ask the question, did you mean to hurt your sister like that? And, and we know that if the answer is yes, if there is intention and purpose, then that makes a difference. And, and this purpose contrasts with aimlessness, purposelessness, mere drifting. We find it hard to imagine something meaningful if it just drifts without purpose from A to B. So the first part of meaning is purpose. And the second thing that the concept of meaning gets at is significance. Uh, every B-grade Hollywood movie has a scene where the husband is caught committing adultery and he tries to explain it to his wife. And what is it that dumb husbands say in crappy movies that are unoriginal to wives after they've been caught committing adultery? What do they say? Here they say, it didn't mean anything. That is, it had no importance, it had no significance to me, it was just sex, it wasn't love, and so it doesn't need to mean anything to you either, so we're all good, right? Well, of course not. But you get the point. If something is trivial, if something's not important, if something has no significance, if it doesn't mean, well, then it's meaningless. Meaning is about purpose and significance. Purpose and significance, and in particular, the combination of purpose and significance when the purpose is an important one. And when you ask the question about the meaning of your life altogether, you're asking the ultimate existential question. Do I have a purpose, a goal, a direction? And does that purpose matter? Does it have significance? Is it important? Or you put it around the other way. Why do I wake up, work and toil away until I'm exhausted at the end of the day and do it all again? Is it all really just work, uh, sorry, rest, work, rinse, repeat? Rest, work, rinse, repeat until I just stop. What does it all mean? Turns out this uh, question of the sense of meaning to our lives is quite important. One author points out that when asked whether they think about the meaning and purpose of life, nearly 75% of the people across the globe, so they do at least sometimes or often, regional variations are small, ranging from 89% of sub-Saharan Africa uh, to 76% in Asia. It really is on everyone's mind. Uh, and what's more, it's unlikely to decline in its influence. Philosopher Martin Heidegger argues in his book, Being in Time, that human beings are distinguished from all other living things by precisely this. We alone, quote, have a capacity to put their own existence into question. We are creatures for whom existence is such, not just particular features of it, is problematic. The psychological need for purpose, I think, is pretty clear. In his book, Being Mortal, 
uh, medicine and what matters in the end. The author tells of a study completed at a nursing home in which dogs, cats, parakeets, rabbits, and even a group of laying hens were brought in to be cared for by residents. And the results uh, were quite dramatic, not dissimilar from that ABC series, uh, Old People's Home for Four-Year-Olds. Uh, listen to what the uh, author concluded. The residents began to wake up and come to life. People who had believed they weren't able to speak, sorry, people who we had believed weren't able to speak, started speaking. People who had completely withdrawn and were non-ambulatory, they couldn't walk, started coming to the nurse's station and saying, I'll take the dog for a walk. All the parakeets were adopted and named by the residents. The use and need for psychotropic drugs for agitation dropped significantly to 38% of the previous level and, quote, deaths fell 15%. I assume that meant deaths at the nursing home. I, I, I imagine that everyone still died sometime unless they found, you know, the secret. Why? Why such an impact? And here's what the author concludes. I believe that the difference in death rates can be traced to the fundamental human need for a reason to live. Purpose. Now, I don't know whether looking after a parakeet, you want to kind of attribute a great significance to that, but maybe in comparison, right? Purpose times significance. That equals meaning. And meaning in life matters. It can literally be the difference between life and death. So why do we find it so hard? Point two, the elusiveness of meaning. Wrestling with the question of meaning, I would suggest, is a fairly modern phenomenon. Uh, for centuries in the West and still in most of the rest of the world, meaning is just obvious for human beings. It is the question which is answered by God. The meaning of life is to live in the light of spiritual reality. And for millennia, whilst much of that meant just sheer survival, it was done at the same time as and in the context of worshipping God. But starting with the Enlightenment, what historians call the modern age dawned uh, and the West more or less decided that it could do without God. And uh, what's more, at first the scientific and then the industrial revolutions gained pace uh, and it seemed to work on almost every measurable level. Food supply, medicine, infant mortality, transportation, clothing, housing, literacy, poverty, everything got better. Modernity was working, at least in the sense of making human existence easier and longer. But it came at a cost. The cost of meaning. Listen to how Bertrand Russell, the late British philosopher and public intellectual, put it. Uh, this, is, this is just a great quote. If you haven't heard this quote, then you're going to love this quote. And if you have heard it, then you'll just sort of rejoice in the fact that you're hearing it again. Ready? That man, and you know, he was a, a, an Englishman in the mid-20th century, so you cope. That human beings are the product of causes which had no prevision of the end they were achieving, that his origin, his growth, his hopes and fears, his loves and his beliefs are but the outcome of accidental collocations of atoms. That no fire, no heroism, no intensity of thought and feeling can preserve an individual life beyond the grave. 
that all the labors of the ages, all the devotion, all the inspiration, all the noonday brightness of human genius are destined to extinction in the vast death of the solar system and that the whole temple of man's achievement must inevitably be buried beneath the debris of a universe in ruins. All these things, says Bertrand Russell, if not quite beyond dispute, are yet so nearly certain that no philosophy which rejects them can hope to stand. And he has the honesty to conclude, only within the scaffolding of these truths, only on the firm foundation of unyielding despair, can the soul's habitation henceforth be safely built. Russell is the perfectly consistent, honest modernist. Most don't have nearly half his courage. He knows what meaning is. Did you, did you notice in the quote? He, he, the quote says, there is neither purpose nor significance. Zero and zero. If you ask the atoms and the molecules, the laws of natural selection or the theorems of physics why, they would simply respond with silence. They don't know this thing called meaning. Neither cosmic meaning nor personal meaning. And Bertrand Russell has the courage of being honest to say, life is absurd. It has no meaning. And if you build your life on anything other than that unyielding despair, he says, you're a fool. Now, of course, people can't cope with that. That just takes far too much courage. Uh, you throw out God, and if that's what you're left with, then you just break down. And so Stephen Jay Gould, a late American evolutionary biologist, uh, wrote this. Uh, why are we here? Well, he'll tell us why we're here, because one group of odd fishes had a particular fin anatomy that could transform into legs for terrestrial creatures because comets struck the earth and wiped out dinosaurs, thereby giving mammals a chance not otherwise available. So he says you can thank your lucky stars in the literal sense. Because the Earth never froze entirely during an ice age, because a small and tenuous species arising in Africa a quarter of a million years ago has managed so far to survive by hook and by crook. That's why you're here. Notice what Gould is doing uh, in that quote. Uh, he answers the why question, but he fudges it. He trades on a confusion. You see, the word why can always point in two directions. It can point to the future, why in the sense of purpose, which is what we've been looking at, but it can also point to the past, that is causation, where the causal chain that led to this situation is on view, and they're two quite different questions. It may be that the causal chain is relevant to purpose, but it's not the same thing at all, and Gould conflates them and argues that the causal chain has no purpose and therefore there is no purpose at all. But that doesn't follow. And here's the point, having got there, where he says, we may yearn for a higher answer, but none exists. He continues in what becomes the only avenue left, the turn inward. 
He goes on, this explanation, though superficially troubling, is not terrifying, is ultimately liberating and exhilarating. We cannot read the meaning of life passively in the facts of nature. We must construct the meaning of life ourselves from our own wisdom and ethical sense. There is no other way. What is the meaning of life? What is the meaning of your life? Why are you here? Well, there is no answer to that question other than the answer that you construct for yourself. That's where we've got to. Uh, this logic is everywhere. Uh, I heard of a TED talk recently, uh, recently titled Why Does the Universe Exist? in which the philosopher Jim Holt concludes that we don't need an answer to the question, why does the universe exist? He goes on and asks the more personal question, why do we exist? And he says, as though this was just common knowledge that the universe is absurd and so the only option left is to construct our own purpose. And here's his suggestion, ready? Knock yourself out with this. Make the nasty bits in the world smaller and the nicer bits bigger. But of course, take it or leave it. It's up to you. If you like the nasty bits, go for it, says Jim Holt. Now, it's worth noting that this construct your own meaning, which, which is, is just profoundly embedded in our culture. It's in every movie, in every advertisement. It's, it's, it's there in Frozen. I've not seen Frozen 2, so I presume it's there in Frozen 2. Uh, it's, it's, it's everything. It comes with some pretty significant limitations. The, the, the first one is that if everyone seeks to create their own meaning, then any sense of shared values and meanings will by necessity erode, won't it? They can't, can't be shared. And so in turn, will social solidarity and the institutions upon which we build life erode. And the result is inevitably polarisation and fragmentation. Does that sound familiar to you? Do you, see, do you see where we've come and do you see why we've gotten to where we are? Or, or as the book of Judges puts it, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. It's the same thing. When the game is making your own meaning, it leads to what you might call a soft relativism, relativism where it's assumed that no one can challenge the meaning or value of anyone else. There is no foundation, there is no basis upon which to determine one or the other. Um, artist Marcel, Marcel Duchamp, I heard this in a, a podcast this week, uh, was way ahead of his time when in 1917 he submitted the sculpture Fountain into a New York art exhibition. You can look this one up. It's an upside-down urinal. Fountain. And his point, of course, is that there were no criteria left in culture to say that this urinal isn't as beautiful, as full of meaning and truth as a Leonardo da Vinci, as a Mona Lisa. And he won the competition. But, but not only is it true that, that if we're all creating our own meaning, it leads to a kind of a social fragmentation, 
Um, the, the truth is that um, we're not fully free to impose our meanings on the world because the world, as it were, speaks back. When you make your own meaning from this secular vantage point, the meaning, the, the purpose and significance that you construct has to be attached to something within this material world. And so you make your life about family or political cause or career. When my uh, son was baptised, my mum uh, was at the baptism, understandably, and it just turns out that that reading that we had from Ecclesiastes 1 was the reading uh, at the baptism and the talk was about meaninglessness and all this sort of stuff. And afterwards, my mum came up to me and she said, sort of almost grabbed, I don't know if she actually grabbed me by the front of my jumper, but it felt a bit like that, at least verbally. She grabbed me and said, that's my meaning, pointing to this squawking, you know, actually he cried a lot, so he's probably crying, baby. That's my meaning? But of course, if you build your meaning in life on something within this world, it means that that meaning is as fragile and vulnerable as the shifting sands of life. Life can speak back. And you might experience that family or career or political ambition or even life itself isn't as stable as you might have first thought. Uh, Viktor Frankl was a Jewish doctor who survived the uh, death camps during World War II, and he has a famous book, Man's Search for Meaning. And in, in it, he explores why it was that some people in the death camps, under astonishing, inhuman, literally horrendous conditions, some seemed to stay strong and kind, whereas others just gave up. It's, it's a very uh, harrowing read, uh, the book, as he describes, the sort of the, the draining of life out of people in those contexts. And the conclusion that he draws is that it has to do with a person's meaning in life. For people who attach their meaning to the things of this life, family or social status or career, when they were, were deprived of all of those things, they simply gave up the will to live. Those things had been swept away. But there were some who didn't crumble under the most intense of pressures. They had a different kind of reference point, one that transcended the circumstances of this life. They had a meaning that wasn't destroyed by adversity. And Frankel concludes, he who has a why to live for can bear with almost any how. What we need is a transcendent meaning that isn't as fragile as the constructed meanings we make for ourselves, ourselves, a meaning that is discovered, that fits with the way that the world is, that can cope with the way that the world is, a why to live for, which leads to point three, received meaning. You see, the Gospel of John starts with an awesome, riveting trumpet blast. It's like, I was trying to think of a movie that just begins with boom, right? That's, that's John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. The word, sorry, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Uh, the Greek word that is translated word, you see what I'm saying? The Greek word that is translated word is the word logos. In the beginning was the logos, and it's not a mistake to hear our English word logic 
here. In the beginning was the logic. The key to the mystery of existence. In the beginning was the meaning of life. And John goes on to say three crucial things about this logos, this logic. Uh, The first is that everything bears the stamp. Everything has the spiritual DNA of the logos imprinted into it. Everything is related to the logos because as John puts it, all things came into being through him. Just in case you didn't get that, he flips it out onto the negative and excludes that. And not one thing that has come into being came into being apart from him. Uh, This is a slightly weird image, but go with it for a moment. Uh, You know how cake decorators have a thing called a piping bag? Have you ever ever seen this? My wife does uh, piping and decorating of cakes. Uh, And at the end of the bag is a nozzle. And the nozzle has different shapes to it, right? Different spikes and pricks and all this sort of stuff. And, And that means that the icing that comes out of the piping bag through the nozzle comes out with that particular shape to it. You with me? A star, triangle, whatever it is. Well, the Logos is like that nozzle through which everything is made, pushed through. And so each in its own way has his shape, the logic embedded in everything. Which leads to the second thing. Notice that I said his rather than its. And and this this is explosive. The truth that uh, the logic of the universe is, is not a principle, but a person. Uh, Greek philosophy was perfectly comfortable with the idea of a logic or principle to the universe, and John is is working with that philosophical idea, actually, here in in his prologue. But by definition for Greek philosophy, that principle of the universe had to be higher and greater than everything else. So it it couldn't be frail or personal or share in human weakness, except John says it is. The word, the logos, became flesh and lived among us. This one who was with God and who was God, the one through whom all things were created, the logic that is spiritually embedded in the DNA of every molecule and every mammal of this universe, this one became flesh and lived among us. He spoke and he walked and he taught and he healed. He could be seen and touched and loved. Do you you see how that changes everything? It means that the logic of the universe is fundamentally and irreducibly personal, relational. It's all about faith, and hope and love. Because that's what relationships are about, isn't it? Trusting the other person. Resting in the other person. Loving the other person. Once more, the testimony of John, the testimony of the life of this Logos Jesus, is that he was full of grace and truth. Notice that it's both grace and truth. It has to be both. Truth without grace is just harsh and demanding uh, and all too often a weapon wielded by those in power to keep power. In the end, it's not truth at all. Grace without truth is just like sort of warmed up lettuce. It's just a kind of 
blob of indulgent acceptance that has no substance or form to it. In the end, it's not grace at all. But the word who became the flesh of Jesus is full of grace and truth, which means that trusting him, resting in him, loving him, living for him, is both safe and sensible. Which leads uh, to the third thing. You see, there is a gentleness about this logos. Did, did you notice it? It's so interesting. He doesn't force himself into your life. You can receive him. Or crazily, you can decline to receive him. In which case, you're just back with Bertrand Russell and Stephen Jay Gould. But notice what John says, verse 12, to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave power to become children of God. Now, the word translated power means uh, something like righteous power, uh, authority. As you, as you receive this logos, as you make the logic of the universe, this person, the logic of your life, you are given an authority, you are given a power, nothing less than the authority of the family, the household of God. And it's crucial to know that this is not only status, but vocation. Right? It's very, very important to see this. Being part of the household of God, being adopted as a child of God, is not just status, it's also vocation. To be part of a household in the ancient world meant to join in the family enterprise to be part of the family business, to give yourself to the project that the family is on about. You're born again, says John, to live with purpose and significance. Did you see? This is the answer to our question. The purpose and significance of joining with God as part of his family. In, in joining with him, in doing what he is doing in this world, which is to expand the spread and influence of grace and truth as a child of the Heavenly Father. What is the meaning of life? What is the meaning of your life? What is its purpose? And does that purpose actually matter? I kind of want to say hell yeah, but it's the other way. Heaven yeah! It's to bring grace and truth to bear as widely as you can for all the days God gives you. It's as simple and rich and all-encompassing as that. As we put it in our mission as a church, to find grace, to learn hope, and to be light. Well, let's, let's uh, draw these threads together. Tomorrow you'll wake up, God willing, and you'll go about your day. Uh, for some, that is the work of paid employment as a, a teacher or consultant or electrician or whatever. Uh, for others, it is the unpaid work of raising children or grandchildren or volunteering in some capacity. You'll engage in all the ordinary bits of life. You'll travel with fellow commuters, no doubt with great patience through the rain, uh, you'll relate to colleagues and family and friends. You'll keep a house clean. You'll make plans. And they are like the dots on the canvas of your life.
mostly small, occasionally big. Might be that tomorrow, you know what? You decide to retire. Or she says yes. We have one who said that. And here's the challenge. They can be just random dots. Meaningless in that sense, without any particular purpose or significance other than just getting through another day. Or they can be the dots like the artist Pissarro, Camille Pissarro or George Surat. Do you know this picture? Anyone seen this one before? Brilliantly, they use dots to make something coherent and evocative and beautiful. I wanted to get a, a, a second slide, which was to really hone it. It's just four million dots. And that's the challenge for your life, is to get all the dots lined up, so to speak. The conversations that you have, and the decisions that you make, and the work that you do, and the gifts that you give, and the money that you spend, so that they all paint a picture, so that they all tell a story, the story of grace and truth. Your calling is to be an artist, an artist of meaning, aligning the myriad moments of life so that they have a logic to them, a logos to them, a purpose that is dignified with nothing less than the purpose of the living and true God, to be a recipient and then an agent of grace and truth in this world, living in the light of Jesus Christ. And that, oh yes, that is a meaningful life. Let's pray. Oh Lord Jesus Christ, we lift our hearts to you in praise and worship and thanks. You are the source. You are the power you're the destiny of our lives. Fill us, we pray, and grant us as, a, as, a, as people and as our people, as a community of people, the collective wisdom we need to know how to join the dots, to paint something that's coherent, that's full of grace and truth, like you and for you. And we ask it in your name. Amen.